I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. Have you ever dreamed of venturing out and starting a company with your friends? Something that lets you be creative and really play to your strengths? Well, for Media Girlfriends, it's not just a dream. It began in 2016 as a podcast hosted by Nanaba Duncan, and in each episode, she spoke with other women working in media. And later, the idea evolved into a podcast production company with co-founders Garvia Bailey and Hannah Sung. Hannah Sung is a journalist and producer. She has produced podcasts for The Globe and Mail, TVO, and The Walrus Lab. And some of us, not me because I'm far too young, grew up watching her on Much Music. Garvia Bailey is a journalist, producer, host, and columnist for the CBC and Jazz FM. And Anaba Duncan is a journalist, professor, and you also might know her voice because she used to host this very show. So welcome <laughs> to all of you. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. So exciting. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Very excited to have you all here. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Nanaba, can you tell me what inspired Media Girlfriends in its original form as a podcast? Yes, in its original form as a podcast, it was inspired because I was in an existential space um, during my parental leave after having my second child. And I didn't know where I ended and the baby began and didn't know what I was doing. But I knew one thing, and it was that in my work, I wanted to interview. I just didn't have that many opportunities in the job that I was doing um, at CBC Music at the time. And I thought, you know... I want there to be some type of proof that I can interview. And I figured I have a lot of girlfriends who work in media. I could interview my girlfriends who work in media, and they would tell me if I suck or not. And I never asked any of them because I didn't couldn't like hear the answer. Um, but I got a lot of practice, <laughs> which was great. And um, then we, some of us just got really close. We got really close. There was a chat group that started. and. And we started to get a whole bunch of ideas on what we wanted to do. And today we're a podcast production company. And Garvia, how did Media Girlfriends turn into a production company? Um, I think it all came together when we realized that we were doing a lot of the same work, especially Hannah and I at the time were doing a lot of same work for other people, freelancing as as producers and freelancing as journalists and doing all of that stuff. And then uh, it occurred to us that everyone around us was like, you guys need to join forces. And we were like, we need to join forces. And the three of us were like, let's join forces. And then, you know, a really uh, good friend of ours, Tori Allen, was like, you know what? I just saw this RFP for Historica Canada for a big project. And we were like, this is our chance. This is it. Let's push the boat out. Let's see what happens. Um, that's just what happened. Just like that. And then we just made an award-winning podcast just right off the <laughs> dome. Like, we were just like, boom, let's go. <laughs> okay, so so success immediately, and it's going well. Hannah, were there any obstacles to starting this company? 
Honestly speaking, we have like constant daily struggles and challenges, you know, it's not easy to do, but it is so worthwhile. And amazingly, we had great people around us. We we formed an amazing team for that show that was called Strong and Free. Um, also for a Libre in French. We were so happy to do it in English and French. And I believe Strong and Free has aired on CBC Radio as well. So yeah, timing, preparedness, friendship, couple of tough moments here and there. But I think anybody who's ever done a creative project that also has a lot of business attached would know that these are the things we go through and we're all still friends, amazingly. <laughs> so Nanaba, can you tell us about some of the work you're most proud of? Can you pick just one is the question. <laughs> I'm really proud of Strong and Free for Libre. So Strong and Free is a podcast that traces stories from the earliest black settlers to recently arrived Canadians. It's hosted by Garvia. Why does it stand out to you? It represents so much of who we feel we are as journalists. You know, we did it our way. We created a podcast thinking about history, but linking it to the present, which is really something that we can thank Garvia for, and also linking it to our own experiences, recognizing that we're journalists who have personal experiences that we can bring to the process of telling stories. And I have told this story before where there's an episode about Marianne Shad Carey, who's the first black woman to publish and edit a newspaper in North America. She is my hero, and we did an episode on her. And at the end of it, hearing Garvia's voice saying Media Girlfriends at the end was, it was just so cool. I cried. I might have cried a tiny bit. Do you find that there's shared core themes in all of the shows that you've ended up producing? I think that the shows are have all been different and the, the podcasts that we've produced, the projects that we've worked on have all been different in their own way. But at the end of the day, the way that we decide to go about creating the things are all is always the same because that's linked to our core values as a company, as media girlfriends. So, you know, that's the through line is, is that we want to tell stories really, really well, but we do want to tell, you know, specific kinds of stories. You know, we want to make sure that voices that are, and stories that are, you know, that haven't necessarily been out in the world in a specific way get to be out in the world in this very specific way. This platform is great for it. So I think that that's the through line. Wouldn't you guys say? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Agreed. Very, very much. Something that we've really seen with our everyday work is that you don't have to sacrifice excellence to do the work with kindness for each mm. other. And and it's true, as Garvia says, every show that we've made has been slightly different in its approach. And we keep learning like journalism is in such an interesting space right now as we debate, you know, what is objectivity really? Whose point of view really gets to be centered? Whose voices should be speaking on, you know, which issues and when and how do we make space and um, all these things? We're like constantly grappling with those things, too, which with every show and so I would say that it's that striving to keep the kindness and the humanity at the core that is the through line for everything that we do. And, you know, 
Have you ever ended a meeting, a Zoom meeting with your colleagues and they sign off with, okay, love you? <laughs> um, that thankfully, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we do have workplace yeah. boundaries here, so I see what you're saying, though. We don't have an HR, so we're, we're okay. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm curious now, because you've all worked at larger media companies, and I just want to know what has it been like making this work yourselves as opposed to making it with within the larger kind of structure of a media company yeah it's hard like i mean because we're doing everything ourselves right so Mm -hmm. especially as a at the end of the day we're entrepreneurs as well right we are business owners um we're not just the production staff like we had employees for the first time this year and I've never been a boss lady in that way, you know? <laughs> You've been a boss lady in so many other ways, Oh, in Garfield. other ways, for <laughs> sure. But in that way, like an actual boss lady. So it's been interesting. One thing that I'll say is different is that some decisions can be made real quick. Mm. Like if you want to change something, if you want to uh, go into a different direction, you can just change the direction. And another thing is that, um, I, I mean, I was recently writing some research stuff, so this is on my mind, is that like you can just call a thing racist. I can just say something is racist. I don't have to fight with somebody about whether something is racist or not. I can just say it is. And Garvey and Anne are like, yeah, it is. And we're just going to call it that. There's no racially tinged. There's no, it's just, we just say things as they are. And that speaks to um, us having our experiences and acknowledging the the expertise within our experiences. So speaking of that research, I know that you are the Cardi Chair in Journalism for Diversity and Inclusion Studies at Carleton University. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, you recently got some good funding news. What can you tell us about that? Uh, What I can tell you at the moment is that I have recently come into a little money um, under 100,000. And what that means is that I will be able to launch the Marianne Shad Carey Center for Journalism and Belonging. And this is a research institute that uh, is going to focus on um, journalism and inclusion and diversity. We don't have such an institute in Canada, and I think there there should be one. So why don't I just start another big idea? And can we say that that all started because you did a podcast episode about Marianne Shad? I mean, is it all connected? It is connected. It is connected in that, I mean, she was always a she was a hero of mine I won't say always because I didn't know about her in journalism school but she she was a hero of mine and watching her story be told through strong and free was amazing and then um, when I started to think of the idea of there being this institute it just seemed like a no-brainer like of course it should be named after this woman because I did not know about her, and I want everyone to be able to say her name, essentially. So um, I I got permission from the family, and uh, we have named the center. Garvia, what message are you hoping to leave listeners through the shows that you produce? Oh, man. 
I think so much of the work that we that we've done is, I hope, like illuminating to people that they're hearing a different perspective, that they're hearing different voices, that they're hearing stories that they might not have heard, you know, otherwise that they're hearing how you can do, you know, hard interviews and stuff, but with care and with compassion and give people space on this platform. You know, this show podcast playlist is about podcasting. It's about, it's about this medium that we all really dig. Right. And I think that the reason that we all dig it so much is when it's done right, it's really like opening up our empathy channels. Like individually we're being opened up to other people and their feelings and their experiences. And that's why podcasting is so powerful to me. And that's what I want people to feel like once they've listened to something that we've produced, that their empathy channel has been busted open by just, you know, listening to other people's stories. Mm hmm. Well, I want to let the listeners hear a bit of this work that you all have been doing. So we're going to listen to a clip from Humans of the House, and it's one of the more recent projects that you've been working on. This show is all about the people behind politics in Canada. There are stories about how to launch a political career, surviving trials and tribulations, and a few people actually explain why they left politics, which is very interesting. In this clip, we hear from host Sabrina Dellen and the former Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, Catherine McKenna. As the Minister of Environment and Climate Change and later the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, Catherine McKenna had a lot coming her way during question period. I was in the line of fire in the House of Commons, and that was one thing. It wasn't pretty. And I also I have things to say about question period and how we run question period. And once again, that actually goes to regular workplace. I think it's almost like harassment. When I got in, I had no idea that people would just be screaming at me and heckling you. You could barely actually think to get your answer. I, I, I actually committed that I would not read my answers, but it's very hard when people are yelling at you and you're trying to just get your answer back. And I, I don't know why we don't put an end to that. Like, I think speakers have to be way tougher, by the way. And I think for, for women, it's extremely odd. And I don't want to generalize about women, but as I say, I'm really tough. I went to law school. I lived in a war zone. I'm a competitive swimmer from Hamilton. And I just could not believe this. Um, this environment, it's like this little cage match, everyone's screaming. And then everyone, it just gets everyone going. And I felt I was getting going too, you know, they are yelling at you. Did you, did you feel safe? I felt safe, but I felt like some days it was really hard mentally. Like you had to get into a particular headspace and you knew if you said anything, one little twig wrong, <laughs> that it would suddenly be an attack ad. And so for me, being in a very high profile role, fighting for a price on pollution, really fighting for climate action, which was actually my job, um, I found it extremely stressful. And, and people, maybe I didn't tell people this, but I actually really did not like question period. I really didn't. And I gave as good as I got probably by the end. Um, and I didn't even love that. But I felt like I had to be seen as fighting because I was fighting. I was fighting for the planet. <laughs> and so it was... Um, it was not fun. And then, then there are under the comments, snarky remarks. Um, 
I mean, I was called, uh, I was even called by, by a colleague, uh, Climate Barbie. And then, you know, I mean, that was already been out there, but suddenly I, that's when I got really furious. <laughs> I was like, okay, a colleague in the House of Commons is actually trying to make fun of me and dimin diminish me really to diminish my message um, because I would, you know, not be credible, you know, spokesperson for what we were doing. This colleague was Conservative MP Jerry Ritz. He replied to an article on Twitter. Here's a clip from CTV News. This video from the United Nations, hot on the heels of a political firestorm triggered by a tweet from Conservative MP Jerry Ritz calling McKenna climate Barbie. Ritz deleted the tweet and apologized. Well, I mean, no one did anything for a long time because I think that the best advice or people thought this was the best advice was to do nothing. And I was like, oh, for the love of God. Um, you know, I'm a serious person actually just trying to do my job and I don't want to take on the gender thing too. But one day uh, I was just mad. I was with my ministerial team because I was in New York at a UN meeting on climate and it was a long day and I came home and I just said, I came back to we were in the hotel lobby and I just said, sorry guys, I'm just going to respond. Catherine responded on Twitter. She said, do you use that sexist language about your mother, daughter, sister? We need more women in politics. Your sexist comments won't stop us. And I just called him out, but it was actually probably even, it wasn't really just about me. It was about what I saw in the House of Commons. It was the way I saw women treated on social media. And it was also because I had, you know, I have kids and I also want women to get into politics. And if we don't, if we let these things slide, then you think, oh, it's all okay. 20 minutes later, Jerry Ritz deleted his tweet and apologized, saying that the word Barbie was not reflective of Catherine McKenna's role as minister. The party did come round, and, and I think, you know, that anyway, the, the opposition, the, the member did, he sort of apologized. You know, but it, it didn't stop. It didn't stop because it hadn't started with Jerry Ritz's tweet. The phrase climate Barbie was already being used. In fact, it led to this heated exchange at a press conference. This audio is from CBC News. Uh, so you're the rebel media that happens to call me Climate Barbie. I certainly hope that you will no longer use that hashtag. Me personally, I never have, Minister. I just would like a commitment that you will not call me names, that you won't talk about the color of my hair, that you won't make fun of me. That, and the reason I'm asking you not to do this is because I have two daughters. All right. That there are lots of girls that want to get into politics, and it is completely unacceptable that you do this. In the years that followed, the threats continued online and also moved offline. By 2019, at times, Catherine even needed extra security because of the threats to her safety. That's pretty unusual, even for a high-profile cabinet minister. And that's the thing that really made, that really was bad for my kids. Like when it gets to become security issues or I'm walking my son to school and it's the first time I've been able to walk him to school for a very long time because we've just come out of a hotly contested election, which I hated every single day. I hated it. I found it very stressful because I was like, we have to win or we're going to lose the price on pollution. Like, we're actually, I really felt personally responsible. Um, anyway, I uh, got a call while I was walking him to school um, saying that someone had written the C word on my, on my campaign office. Early this morning, staff at Ottawa Centre MP Catherine McKenna's office discovered a vulgar word, which we've blurred, scrawled across a large image of McKenna's face on the front window of her campaign office. That was from CBC News. 
What happened to Catherine is sadly all too common. Women in politics have always faced harassment. Now, with so much of the political conversation online, the volume and reach of toxic attacks that target women leaders is unprecedented. And so I would say, you know, you could probably talk to almost any parliamentarian right now, and they've had incidents with respect to their security. But certainly if you're a high-profile politician, um, you happen to be a woman, you happen to be LGBTQ+, you happen to be Indigenous, you happen to be a visible minority, I, I can almost guarantee that you've had many more problems um, on social media, but often in real life too. She got into it with us. She got into it. From Media Girlfriends and the Samara Center for Democracy, that was Humans of the House. It's hosted by Sabrina Dellen. Their team includes Elena Hudgens-Lyle, Beatrice Wayne, Vijay Kumar, and Gabby Clark. Okay, let's get into some podcast recommendations. I'm very interested to see and hear what you all are listening to. Nanaba, you're up first. You chose Authentic, the story of Tableau. For listeners who don't know, who is Tableau? So Tableau is a hip-hop musician from Korea, and he made it to the very, very top and uh, was well-loved until he wasn't. Basically, people thought that he was lying about his education. He went to Stanford in the States and there became, there was basically this growing group of people who didn't believe him and they doxed him essentially. And that's, that's the story. And what was it about the show that grabbed your attention? So what I love about this podcast is that it has hip-hop and it has storytelling and it has Korean culture and I like it when there is a casual nature to a host who's also knowledgeable it's it's a lovely mix when a person can do that and also I can't I'm so curious what Hannah thinks because I learned about this hot this podcast because of Hannah and I I'm actually like are you mad at me because I chose this podcast because I wonder if I wonder if you were like that's mine because also for me it was also like learning so much about Korean culture mm. Korean hip hop to and learn Korean how hip hop that's what yes, I, I to learned learn about how, Korean hip hop yeah to learn how deep it is in mm -hmm. the country right mm -hmm. the beats you know in a podcast when you hear something being said and then there's like a pause, but at the pause, there's also like the beat. Like, I love that. To me, that's art, and I love that. Nanaba, I love hearing you talk about this show because you know when you really, you know when you really recommend something to a friend and you're like, was I too forceful about that? Am I a weirdo <laughs> for loving this show as much as I do? But then, Nanaba, you are on CBC Radio right now talking about this show that I recommended to you. And I'm like, yes, I feel so validated. You actually loved it, you know? I really I also did. loved it. And yeah, I love hearing you talk about it. And that, folks, is why they are media girlfriends. <laughs> okay, right here. You're listening to it right here. Well, okay, let's listen to a bit of the show now so people get a sense. This is Tableau telling the story of what happened after one of the more famous conspiracy theories about him began circulating in the K-pop world. Let's take a listen. You know, like normal people do, 
I fell in love mm. and I was getting married and I was going to have a kid. And then time passes and it's my daughter is born and I'm at the hospital and it's like, it's like an indescribable awe and confusion like that I've created a, a living being and like I'm holding, it's just a, an emotion that I can't really describe. And mm. we're at the hospital for about a day or two and you know, I took a picture of, I think my daughter's like foot or hand and, and Twitter was like slowly a thing now. Yeah. And I thought, you know, you have to share everything, right? Of so Twitter. especially the first, you know, the birth of your first kid. Mm. So I, I posted the, the picture and I was like, I just had my daughter. Uh, my wife is safe. Thank God. And stuff like this. And I posted it. And then some mentions are coming in and I'm looking mm -hmm. and some of them are like, congrats, but a lot of them are like, why don't you explain yourself? And some of them are outright like, just die. What about your lies? And my wife is like right next to me. Mm -hmm. I'm like visibly shocked. And she can see your face. Yeah. And she's like, what's going, what did they, what, what are people saying? Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was like, uh, just give me a second here. I like, I, I have to, uh, just, just give me a second. And I try to figure out what was going on. I explained to my wife as best as I could, but I didn't want to like stress her out in this situation. So I said, oh yeah, just, yeah, they're congratulating us. But I think like people are spreading rumors about me. It was a mm -hmm. thing now. What had started as a wayward post on an article comment section in the fall of 2009 had quietly spread. In May of 2010, a new Naver Cafe forum was created. It had a catchy name, Tajinyo. So Tajinyo means, or which means we demand truth from Tableau. The founder of the forum stated that it was, quote, dedicated to uncovering the truth about Tableau. He started posting videos from old TV interviews, documents, and anything he could find to back up his claims that Tableau was lying. The initial motivations of the forum are a little murky. Some people argue that it started with anti-fans, people who were just interested in seeing Tableau fall. But members of the forum would insist that it was always about the pursuit of truth, that they knew that Tableau was lying about his degree, and they wanted the lying stop. At first I thought it was just bizarre, like, you know, why would, why would this be a big deal? Within a matter of weeks, Taijinyo was getting hundreds of comments a day. Users were sharing articles and videos. They also started looking into anything or anyone that could have a connection to Tableau at Stanford. After a while, what I do remember is people kept asking, hey, didn't you go to Stanford? Do you mm -hmm. know about this whole Tableau situation? At the time, Sean Lim was working as a journalist for one of Korea's biggest broadcasting companies. Sean was a year ahead of Tableau when they met at Stanford. What was your relationship like with him? You two personally? It was... It was, for a while, sort of like brothers. Really? Yeah, close. I felt like I w was really close with him. Like, there was, a there was a period, like, maybe about... I would say two quarters that we were like always together, like, um, especially like we we're in the same dorm, like seeing each other, like 
practically every day. They went different ways after college. Sean stayed in the U.S. for a couple years before moving to Korea and pursuing broadcast journalism. But they still kept in contact. Sean was proud of his college buddy, but he didn't brag about it or anything. So he didn't have much occasion to talk about Tableau with strangers. But then the rumors started getting bigger and he found himself in some weird conversations. So somebody would ask you, hey, was Tableau there when you were there? I'm like, yes, of course. They're like, really? Are you sure? And then and it increasingly came from people who were like producers. Mm. Like people who were like, I'm supposed to like not have an attitude with, not think that they're stupid. Right. I have to work with, have to trust their news judgment. So people were like, just like ravenous, like, like zombies just trying to like, ugh, like suck the blood. As the forum grew, individual users started getting a sort of celebrity status within the group. One of them was a user posting under the name What Becomes. What Becomes posted a lot, often multiple times a day, and they were pretty forceful. On May 16, 2010, What Becomes wrote, Just get the transcript from Stanford and show it to us. Instead of saying I have a friend who can confirm that I did study at Stanford, why can't you just show us the transcript? This will all be over if you show us just one document. Turn yourself into the police and say that you forged diplomas. You bastard. South Korea is not your playground where you just come in and prey on others. It seemed like there were new allegations every day. That original statement that Tavlo was lying about his college degree turned into deeper accusations about identity theft, fraud, and conspiracy. That Tavlo, whose real name was Daniel Lee, had stolen the identity of a real Stanford graduate who was also named Daniel Lee. Or maybe he didn't steal it. Maybe he paid the real Daniel Lee off to keep quiet. Or maybe he killed Daniel and took his diploma. And he was able to get away with this because he was being protected by the media and the Korean government. Or maybe it was the American government. Maybe the FBI and also Korean elites had something to hide. And they were protecting their own. From Vice Audio and iHeart Podcast Network, that was Authentic, the story of Tableau. It's hosted by Dexter Thomas Jr. Their team includes Stephanie Kariuki, Minji Koo, and Kate Osborne. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and now go to Garvia's pick. Uh, You recommended You Didn't See Nothing, which dives into this 1997 case of Leonard Clark, a young boy beaten into a coma during a racist attack. There's so many true crime podcasts out there. I mean, so many to choose from. What was it about this one that drew you in? You know what? We heard about this podcast uh, sitting in the backseat sharing a cab with Josh Block, who was at USG, who is uh, the the team that that uh, 
put this out into the world, USG Audio. And Josh gave us like a two minute elevator pitch of this show before it even became a show. And I was already listening to it at that point when he (laughs) gave me like like a minute and a half. And I was like, I am in. Why? Because Johannes LaCour, who is is the host of this, is, you know, an uh, ex-con who is also an unbelievable writer, an incredibly compelling storyteller. This man who, um, who experienced this from a very, in a very personal way. He was like, I think he was 20 years old when uh, Leonard was beaten. And he was like, I need to tell this story because this is what has shaped me as a human being. It is unbelievable the storytelling and then again the mixing because we're Mm. craft people the the use of music the use of of voices the way that it was crafted was just so sumptuous i just was in it (laughs) and i love memoir i think memoir and journalism together come on bring it bathe me in it like i'm ready shower me in all of it (laughs) okay well let's (laughs) let's listen to a clip of you didn't see nothing now in this clip johans brings us back to 1997 bridgeport illinois and we meet some of the people he grew up with so i heard that a child had gotten attacked in bridgeport it was a no-brainer that it seemed to be a racial attack It was a no-brainer because of the neighborhood where it took place, Bridgeport. It's always been tough territory. The neighborhood of Chicago's vast slaughterhouses scored by the Chicago River, roadways, elevated tracks, and railroad lines. That was NPR, but this my little homie Pee Wee. It's where you you can get spit on and call this (laughs) and and that's where our mayor is from, both of them. Pee Wee's talking about the dailies. Mayor Daly and his son, Mayor Daly. Ah, come on, that's baloney. I said that was baloney, but I said something else, which I'm not going to say. Oh, you know, it's bull. The Dalys ran Chicago for 60 years. When you hear people talk about Chicago's political machine, that's them. There'll be law and order in Chicago as long as I'm mayor. They from Bridgeport, a neighborhood with deep ties to police and the mob. And Bridgeport has always been white. Bridgeport is one Chicago neighborhood that time missed. An island of blue-collar ethnic whites with a history of racial strife. A working-class bungalow belt that used its political clout to isolate itself from the growing black population. Bridgeport had Chicago's first race riot in 1919. When he was just a teenager, old man Daly was part of an Irish gang that fanned the flames of those riots. I suppose so. We were taught how to use our fists when we were young. You had to do that. And later, when he was mayor, he did everything he could to make Chicago among the most racially segregated cities in the United States, including building an expressway, a border wall, like 10 lanes deep between the white people in Bridgeport and what we called the low end, which was all black. And on the black side were these housing projects, high-rises. Stateway, the Robert Taylors, the Ida B's, the Ickies, the Hilliard Homes, the Dearborns. Those high-rises are destroyed now. But in the late 90s, 
They were two miles of vertical ghettos right next to the expressway. In the shadow of Chicago's majestic skyline, isolated islands of crime, poverty, 11 of the nation's... One project alone was 28 buildings, 16 stories each. The longest stretch of public housing in the whole country. White people didn't set foot on the black side of the highway. And all I knew about the white side, Bridgeport, is you don't go there. Who told me? Everybody. It was like the Loch Ness Monster. It was like the Bermuda Triangle going up. It was like, you go in Bridgeport, you might not come out. And Roe knew firsthand. As a child, I had gone to elementary school in Bridgeport. I was bused into a magnet school, and so I had had some experience with some of the hostilities that Bridgeport could offer to a young black child. And here it is, a cat born the same year I'm born, having the same experiences that I associate with my grandparents' generation. Brickstone at our bus. Folks tried to stop the bus to, you know, get on. Uh, but yeah, we were threatened this, that, uh, go back to Africa, all that type of stuff. So when Rose saw what happened to this kid on the news, it hit home for him. Yeah, definitely struck a chord based on my own experience. And I think I wanted to do something. I was like, man, let me call Johans. Let me call Johans. He'll understand. The same way I'd rally troops if one of the guys got attacked, I was rallying the troops to avenge this kid's beating. We gotta, you know, we gotta get as many people as we can. What's a proper response to something like this that's happening in our city? I couldn't think of anything other than, like, we gotta go over there. You know, sometimes you gotta go to war to get peace. I hung up the phone with Roe and called Pee Wee. Pee Wee has been a baby-faced boy since he was a baby. He's like every Southside neighborhood's little brother. And I ain't gonna lie, I never wanted to go at Bridgeport. Uh, listen, you ain't gonna have me hanging from a tree. You know what I mean? Hanging from a tree. That's the image we associated with Bridgeport. But Pee Wee still rode out with us. I called Jamez. Jamez was just a real smooth dude, but he was a gangster. And he was a weed head. I mean, we all were, but he stayed high. He was ready to go. He bout that action. He died some years ago, though, from MS. May he rest in peace. I called Will. Will is like Blade, the black vampire superhero. He wears sunglasses at night. Last but not least, I called Earl, the guy I wrote plays with. And y'all called me. Like, basically, the revolution is here. For whatever reason, we rode in Jamez's car, his little-ass two-door Sebring. I mean, we were deep, loaded in, like, sardines. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember us being packed in. We obviously smaller at that time, so. Just riding, it was daylight. I don't even know why we went in just broad daylight, but this is what we doing. We were definitely going to outnumber somebody, somebody closer to our age, and make them feel what that little boy felt. We were really salty, we were hyped up. It was completely emotional. Relatively quiet. You know the quiet before the storm? 
I do remember that we did have some bottles and pipes and, you know, we was ready for that action. <laughs> it's not sweet like that in Chicago to beat the out of little black boys simply because they're black. Like, no, 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 they can't just do that. You know what I'm saying? That's what y'all doing? Y'all y'all over here putting black people into comas, huh? Put us in one, too. With Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny, it's Space Jam. Buying men's and ladies diamond rings, bridal sets. Until 1998. All you've got to do is... Get the negative and make a positive out of it. Trying not to. I think you probably need to bless the right side. Bridgeport is nicer than the ghetto, but it's still super blue collar. The first thing you see is Sox Park and the fact that they ain't missing no city services. Inside the Horizon restaurant on Halstead, we were called over by white diners who preferred not to be identified but wanted to speak up in defense of their neighborhood. Well, they making such a big stink about this, anyhow. I mean, every time it's on the news, they have to mention the Bridgeport. Is that necessary? Is that necessary? I'm not, I'm not a racist, but why can't they be called a racist as well as we are in their feelings? Are you recording this? Holy God. Well, you said come on over and talk. Well, we sure, why not? So I'm talking, yeah. but I get, I get riled up. One incident doesn't make everybody a racist. Thank you. There's been rather more than one incident over the past care. 20 years. So is, there's been more than one in their area, too. Why don't they take care of their own? Just because you're white, I guess you don't belong. I mean, we're getting to be a minority. I don't want to be prejudiced. I like black people. I've known a lot of, I mean, black people. I haven't had everything in my lifetime. I had to work for it. And that's what I resent. I don't resent the black man. I resent their attitude as a black man. We saw some guys that kind of fit the description, you know, fit as being our counterparts. Two or three white dudes who looked about our age. I think we rolled around maybe once or twice after we spotted them. And then we parked. And I think we might even pop the trunk and oh, oh I remember being sorely, severely outnumbered. It was about to be the whole opposite situation <laughs> that I had in mind coming over here. They were coming out from like this big field house building in the park, just swarming. It looked like a football team running onto the field, but in regular street clothes. This is not what's up. You know, white teens, early 20s, they had bats and pipes. You know, these little poles and stuff we got in this, this is not gonna get it done. And we was realizing like, nah, this ain't it. It's time to regroup. It's time to retreat. From USG Audio and the Invisible Institute, You Didn't See Nothing is written and reported by Johans LaCour. Their team includes Bill Healy, Dana Brozos-Kelleher, Arissa Apentaku, and Sarah Geis.
I'm interested to hear now, Hannah, your take on the show that you chose, which is Shameless Acquisition Target, because this is the kind of show that, again, I, I don't think I would hear in regular media talking about these kind of subjects. It's very inside baseball. Um, it's a show by Laura Mayer, and it's really wacky and unique. Can you just can you just tell us a bit about it and why you wanted to recommend it? Yeah. Um, it's a bit funny because it's going to seem like I have a one track mind and I'm so boring because we're on this show <laughs> talking about our podcast company. And, and this specific show, Shameless Acquisition Target, is about having a podcast company, basically. You know, <laughs> um, This is why I identified with it so strongly, though. And uh, so Laura Mayer is a woman who has been working in radio and audio storytelling for her entire career. She was a total audio nerd who loved and idolized Ira Glass on This American Life. She was on that show as a high school student because as she describes herself, she was a try-hard loser who was always like trying to like get in there and do her best, you know? And then there was a kind of podcast boom that happened. Basically, the podcasting world became awash in money as companies started to become acquired for silly amounts of money. And she had left a company because she was burnt out and they had taken back her shares in that company. And then two years later, it sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. So she she very cheekily started this podcast called Shameless Acquisition Target, which is all about trying your hardest to sell out. And so it was interesting, everything that she kind of filled in, especially behind the scenes anecdotes, you know, when she describes the all-company-wide meeting where she had to announce her resignation. Oh, my God. These kinds of boardroom slash, like, hey, meeting in the cafeteria, everybody get together. These kinds of workplace horror moments have, I think, happened to all of us. Or we've witnessed them. It's deeply relatable as a show, even if the topic feels like it's so niche, you know, having a trying to make some money out of the podcasting game. Mm-hmm. Well, let's listen to a bit of it now. Here's host Laura Mayer explaining podcast acquisition culture and why she embarked on this journey to get her show acquired. All right. So what is an acquisition anyway? Simply put, it's when one company buys a smaller company. The larger company does this because they've identified some value that they believe they can gain through buying the smaller company. Once the acquisition takes place, generally that smaller company is incorporated into the larger company's operations. To be honest, I didn't care all that much about acquisitions until they started happening all around me over the last several years. Allow me to let some numbers do the talking. In 2015, EW Scripps acquired Midroll Media for $50 million. In 2018, iHeartMedia acquired Stuff Media, including How Stuff Works, for $55 million. In 2019, Spotify acquired Gimlet reportedly for $200 million. In 2019, Spotify acquired Anchor, reportedly $140 million. I'm interrupting this whirlwind to explain what you're hearing. I hired a young child and an old man to read off some of the deals to help me make this point. In 2019, Spotify acquired Parcast for $56 million. In 2019, SiriusXM acquired Pandora for $3.5 billion. In 2019, Enter Com, now known as Odyssey, acquired Pineapple Street Media for $18 million. In 2019, Intercom, now known as Odyssey, acquired Cadence 13 
for fifty million. Twenty twenty Sirius XM acquired Stitcher and Earwolf from EW Scripts for three hundred twenty-five million dollars. In twenty twenty, Amazon acquired Wondery for three hundred million dollars. In twenty twenty-one, Amazon acquired Art Nineteen for three hundred million dollars. Thank you, Fiverr. I will proudly take you on as an advertiser. Ugh, that is many millions of dollars, and this is not an exhaustive list. This flood of money forever changed the industry from a business and creative perspective. As these acquisitions happened, I watched as much of the business strategy shifted away from the revenue generated by the podcast themselves and focused more on how the shows or their RSS feeds, basically the channel through which a podcast distributes its episodes, could become something totally different become TV shows, movies, franchises. This changed the type of shows that could be created, the way shows were marketed, the types of audiences that were served. All because suddenly, countless companies in this small industry were most focused on getting acquired. And guess what? So am I. Over the next six weeks, I'm bringing 15 years of podcast experience to bear to try to sell out as hard and as fast as I possibly can. What are you doing? Wee! You are sus. We're taking a walk. Me, my husband, Danny, and our one-year-old daughter, Joanna. It's a walk we've done many times before. Okay, so let's just stop for a second. Can you describe, just describe the house? It's a gray house. The gray house. I would guess it's about 80 to 100 years old, because that's how old most of the houses in this neighborhood are. And um, should I do like a brief history of Victorian Flatbush? I'll stop him here. The Gray House is a remarkable compact tutor, excellently maintained, just blocks away from our rental apartment. The first time I saw it, I thought, someday I will live there. I've never had that clear of a thought about basically anything ever. We would walk by it all the time, particularly after COVID, and just daydream about having more space. And then we've looked it up on Zillow and stuff. And uh, it has a it has a very uh, distinctive and nice exterior. If you're an aspiring homeowner, I suspect you've done your fair share of Zillow Harriet the Spying, too. But the gray house, the gray house holds some kind of psychic power for me. If I'm having trouble sleeping, I think of the gray house. If I'm annoyed by something that happens with work, to the gray house my mind goes. When I literally almost died after having my kid, I thought a lot about the gray house. Let it be known that Joe has started pointing at their neighbor. The gray house made me realize there are two things that would make me feel like I have fully made it financially. If I own a home that I can comfortably afford, and if I can donate enough money to the Sean Casey Animal Rescue, where I adopted my cat Hector 10 years ago, so that they name a cage after him. Ideally, they'd name the cage Hector's Place. I think they could probably build Hector's place for about $8,000, after which we should give it to human beings. Okay, fine. But back to the gray house. I couldn't help myself but do a little more research. And I wanted to reveal my findings to Danny, with Joe, in front of the house, where we've stood many times before. So, the owner of the house? Oh, I already hate this. The trust. Now. That's got to get bleeped so hard. I suspected my shamelessness was going to make for an interesting conversation. Now, the trust, I believe, is between the wife and her. Okay. Her father is a famous litigator. 
Okay. I already am <laughs> so bothered by this. <laughs> a litigator. You better bleep this out so hard. Okay, I, I think, okay, okay, just chill out. You can't say any of this. Okay, so there was a New York Times search that I did on uh-huh. things that had happened to the house, uh-huh. and someone died on the property. Oh, good. That's one of your non-negotiables. But, like... Yeah, it seems like you can have your legs broken and sued if you get at all specific about any of this. People give you a lot less weird looks when you're standing outside with a baby recording something. Yeah. Right, Joe? Where do you want to go? She's pointing forward. To the playground? Excelsior. Despite Danny's discomfort, I'm going to use this moment as an opportunity to... set an intention and start to put some shamelessness back into my life. I'm going to figure out a way, somehow, someday, to live in this damn house. That was Shameless Acquisition Target from Laura Mayer and LRM Works. It's produced by Marina Hankey. And before you all run off, I'm just wondering... Can you tell me what's coming up for Media Girlfriends? What's next? We are doing a like a Media Girlfriends remix in that we want to teach people what we do. We want to go out into the world and tell people how we do what we do. Like we are our our little sign is open. Have us come to your company and we'll tell you what, you know, how this this all works and how as individuals and as a company, we have made our lives work. Um, so that's one part of it is sharing. I think all of us are very, very into the idea of sharing our own little formula as quirky as it is. We want to share it. And I think it's a part of that next chapter as well. That's a part of it anyway. I want to thank you, all three of you for joining me today and just I want you all to know that the work that you have done and the work that you're currently doing has really facilitated my work, and it's the reason I'm here. So thank you. Oh, I love that. All three of you. Oh, my gosh. It's true. That's so nice. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Love you guys. Love you guys. Love you. Love you. I said I would never do that. Um, So uh, today you heard from Nanaba Duncan, Garvia Bailey, and Hannah Sung of Media Girlfriends. You can find out more about them and their work at mediagirlfriends.com. Podcast playlist is Caleb Buys, Julian Uzielli, and Kelsey Cueva, with technical support from Laura Antonelli. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. I'm going to go check out some Media Girlfriends podcasts. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.